Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So this morning, typically when I get up in the morning, I, uh, I sit down in the family room with a tray table, and that's kind of where I eat my breakfast. And I usually have, um, whether it's Fox News or something else, I'll have that on. And so this morning when I sat down, um, the first thing um, on Fox News was they cut to the Pope giving his, what's referred to as the Easter blessing. Now, I won't just keep watching that and see what the Pope has to say. And, um, you know, he obviously mentioned um, Christ and he got into the humanity of Christ and got into his crucifixion. Uh, he mentioned the resurrection. But then as I continued to watch for the next probably 10 or 15 minutes as he gave his blessing, much of the conversation was regarding the hope that Christ offered for through the pandemic and for the poor in Haiti. And um, as I'm watching this, and as I'm kind of reflecting on this, I'm thinking to myself, um, where's the hope that comes for eternal life? That really wasn't spoken, and, and my intent is not to disparage the Pope. I think much of, much of what he said was accurate. Um, but as I'm kind of watching this, uh, I'm thinking two themes that were kind of missing. One was repentance, um, but um, also just not a lot of encouragement of Christ offers you eternal life. He rose from the dead to give you life. And, and it made me think back to um, my upbringing. Um, I was raised in the Catholic Church, and every Sunday morning went to church. And um, so I had a, I'd say, fairly decent understanding of Jesus Christ, and I understood his death on the cross. I hadn't made it personal in my own life. But I remember going to a trip. Um, we used to go to Minnesota every Thanksgiving to visit my dad's brother and his family. And it was a wonderful time. It was probably one of my favorite memories from growing up, as we would drive the six hours from Green Bay and uh, spend the, I think it was probably, we'd go maybe Tuesday or Wednesday, get there, and then we would stay through the whole Thanksgiving weekend. And it was always fun. We would go sledding if there was snow. Sometimes there was. And we'd go walking around downtown. There was always a special place we stopped where we got this caramel corn. You could smell it from blocks away. And so it was just this wonderful time. But I remember one particular trip, we went to a museum that was in Indianapolis, or in um, Minneapolis, St. Paul, somewhere in there. And I don't remember what the name of the museum was. But I remember walking up and seeing this large glass case in this um, room. And it was a um, display of some Egyptian artifacts and things. And I, it might have been related to King Tut or some other things. But I remember in this large glass container was a mummy, all wrapped up in the wraps. Um, and I remember the sign on it, something about maybe from two or 3,000 years ago, and I was mesmerized by it, but mostly because as I'm sitting there, I'm looking at this mummy, and I had this overwhelming sense of fear or dread, and thinking how awful that must be to be laying there, mummified, wrapped in cloth for thousands of years. And that was an image that stuck in my head. And I remember getting to college, and I've shared my testimony with you folks before. I was genuinely, seriously depressed my senior year in high school. And uh, even when I got to college. And I remember one particular night I was in my, my um, dorm room, and I was literally weeping 
And uh, my best friend from the hallway had come down and um, the guy who had actually led me to Christ had also come down and they sat in there and they just talked with me. And I couldn't even explain to them what I was feeling, but so much of what was going through my head was I was petrified of dying. Because my picture, even though I had been raised in a church, my picture of death was that mummy. And just I envisioned myself for all eternity basically in a grave. And I'm claustrophobic by, by nature. I don't like being in confined. I mean, it's not like if I walk in my closet, I'm going to freak out. But put me in a box? Yeah, I'll freak out. Maybe crawl through something really tight? You know, some friends offered to take me splunking one time. And I, there is no way. I'll go down to the caves like in East Liberty or whatever it is. You know, those underground caves. I love that stuff. But not splunking and crawling through tight spots. And so my picture of death, even though I was raised in a, in a, in a church that believed in resurrection, that was my picture. What if I end up like this mummy? That was horrifying to me. And it was something that, that was always present in my thinking. And I remember laying there, and I, I'm trying to exp- I was almost afraid to tell these two guys in my room that w- what was consuming my thoughts was this fear of death and dying. And I've shared before, you know, having thoughts of suicide. And, and um, I was always fairly rational. Where I think the reason I never ended my own life was because I thought, I could make it worse. I could attempt it and fail, and then life is worse, you know? And um, so that was the, the saving grace, if you will, for me. So when I finally came to Christ, the driving factor was I didn't want to end up like that mummy. I remember when, the, when, the, when I finally went down to the room for the guy that shared the gospel with me, when I went down and I basically asked him, will you tell me about Christ? Because he had been trying to for six months. I kept putting him off. And when he basically sat me down and, and walked me through the four spiritual laws and put the emphasis on eternal life, not spending the rest of my eternity in a dirty, rotten grave. That clicked with me, because that's what I wanted. I didn't want to be like that mummy, and I remember going to bed that night and staring up at the ceiling in my bunk bed and praying to some Christ, and that was my prayer. God, I don't want to end up like that mummy. I don't want to end up like him. That's why we're here, folks. It's the resurrection. That's the emphasis. It's not what Jesus does for us here and now. Though those are good things. He died so that we might not go to the grave, stay in the grave, but that we could be raised up to new life. I want to look at something today. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul actually begins his discussion in in 1 Corinthians 15, establishing the fact of Christ's resurrection. Dustin has already mentioned it. It is the greatest event in human history. A man raised from the dead. That just doesn't happen. And so Paul, as he's in the 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he spends the first part of it establishing the fact of the resurrection in verses 3, and we won't read these right here, but in verses 3 through 4, he says, Jesus was crucified for our sins. He died, he was buried, he rose again on the third day, just as prophesied beforehand in the scriptures. That's verses 3 and 4. After his resurrection, he said, he appeared to Peter and the rest of the apostles. That's verse 5. He then appeared to 500 eyewitnesses, many of whom were still alive in Paul's day and could validate and verify what Paul was preaching. 
500 eyewitnesses to this guy who was dead, who's now alive again. Talk about providing evidence. Nothing better than a good, solid eyewitness. That's verse 6. He even appeared to his brother James, verse 7. The very people that had rejected him, his own family, and he chose to appear to him. And then he says finally in verse 8 that Paul himself became an eyewitness. He saw Christ. You remember the story on the road to Damascus. And so he starts by establishing the fact that we know Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if you don't believe me, Paul, go talk to one of the other 500 witnesses. They're still walking around and ask them. This is fact. Historical fact, Paul says. But in spite of that, Paul says, and these are our verses for today, starting in verse 12, that there were those who were claiming that there is no resurrection for the dead. They weren't just saying Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There were some that were saying, there's no such thing. When you're dead, you're dead. You're the mummy wrapped in strips of cloth, encased in a glass room in a museum in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Now, the exact nature of their claim isn't really known, but let's read chapter 12, let's read chapter 15, verses 12 through 13. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, in other words, we know he's been raised from the dead, and if, and if we know that, then how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. In other words, if you say there's no resurrection of the dead, then you defy the fact that Christ himself rose from the dead. There's our evidence. How can you say that? This is a rhetorical question that he actually is asking them. Now, some suggest that these people were claiming that there's nothing beyond this earthly life. In other words, when you're dead, you're just dead. A common belief among the Romans and the Greeks was that the soul could not live apart from the body. So when your body died... Your soul died. That was a common thinking, philosophy among the Romans and the Greeks. It's actually seen in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is debating. There's these uh, Epicurean and these Stoic philosophers, Greek philosophers that are listening to him. And the text in chapter 17 says they were intrigued by what he was saying. It even refers to it as, oh, this is something new. Paul was preaching the resurrection of the Christ. And here are these Stoic philosophers, Greeks and Romans, who didn't believe in life after death. Because when the body dies... There's nothing left. And so they were intrigued by that, it says. And so they listened. And they even asked Paul, come back, and we'd like to hear more about this. So Paul went back. And the end result of that was, some of them just thought it was foolishness then, and sort of brushed him off. Others got angry. But it says, some actually accepted it. Accepted what Paul was saying about the resurrection. So it's possible that Paul here is talking to the Corinthians, and it might be that some of them were influenced by this Roman and this Greek philosophical belief or understanding. And so it might be that there are those in the church here who are so heavily influenced by Stoic philosophy, Epicurean philosophy, that they're believers, they're in the church, if you will, but they really don't believe there's anything after death. So it's possible that's what Paul's referring to here. This was a very Greek church. It was in Corinth. So that's... a pretty good possibility. Others suggest that these people weren't rejecting the concept of life after death per se, but only that there's a physical resurrection. It was common among Hellenistic Jews, which are Greek-speaking Jews, those are influenced by Greek philosophy as well, 
But they believed ultimately that the body dies, but the soul or the spirit can actually go on. In fact, one of the ways that I heard a commentator refer to this was that there was an inharmonious view or parts of unequal value, meaning the body and the soul are sort of, they, they, they sort of exist together, but they're not really connected. And so when you die, it's like shedding a skin. And your eternal part just kind of goes on. So there is no resurrection because it's not necessary. It's just sort of like the spirit kind of moves into a different plane, if you will. And so it may be that there might have been some Hellenistic Jews here that were simply denying a physical resurrection, but not necessarily a spiritual resurrection. But either way, regardless of which group this might be, or if there's some other flavor going on here, Paul says that there are some among them that were rejecting the concept of a physical resurrection after life ends. Notice he says in verse 12 there, some among you. Means some within the church body there, the local church at Corinth, were denying the physical resurrection and therefore didn't believe that Jesus Christ himself had physically risen from the dead. It's obviously a false teaching. Jesus himself taught that everybody who dies will ultimately be raised up. In fact, John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 says that everyone will be raised up. However, some will go on to eternal life. Some will go on to eternal judgment. Resurrection is a fact. One of the things we'll see as we study through the book of Acts is that the apostles preached time and time again that Jesus was raised from the dead. In fact, I thought, I thought this was interesting. I started doing some digging as I just I thought, I wonder how often the resurrection is mentioned. You know it's mentioned eleven times in the book of Acts, which is more than any other book of the Bible, including the Gospels. Because that's what the apostles preached. We're told time and time again that what they preached when they went out was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the emphasis. I wonder sometimes as I look at our, our churches today. Um, I have a phrase I use, preaching to felt needs. I was on a, uh, a website the other day, some friends of mine um, were looking at a new church. And they mentioned the church, and so I went, kind of went online. The first thing I always do is I check their statement of faith just to kind of see where they're at, flavor-wise. And then I go and I look at some of the messages, and I listen to some of the messages. And I look at what they're preaching and how they're preaching. And once again, I found that so much of what was there was aimed at, at me and my felt needs... And I wonder sometimes, how much emphasis do we put on resurrection and the fact of future life? We focus so much on just getting through today and getting through the mud. And that's important. I mean, Christ left us here. It's a struggle to be here. But our real hope is resurrection. We come to Christ for resurrection, not just to get through this life. And I think that's one of the things that maybe we've kind of gotten wrong with the American church is that we've turned so we turned our focus so much into what I call the felt needs. Saw another note the other day on the prosperity gospel of the American church. We think of that oftentimes in the word faith movement, but you know what? It's, it's infiltrated our evangelical churches today because this new uh, health and wealth is all about here and now. And it's in some respects a perversion of the gospel because the emphasis in the book of Acts isn't on the here and now. 
but on the resurrection of Christ. That's our hope. And so the question that Paul's going to answer here, and the one that I thought about, was, what if it never happened? What if the resurrection never happened? That's what Paul's going to address here. He's going to provide us with six different reasons why the resurrection of Christ is crucial to our faith. Paul's going to provide us again six reasons why the resurrection is crucial to our faith. And there's a bit of overlap to some degree here. There's also some interesting structure to what he does here. We're not going to spend much time on that. But I'm just going to highlight what I see as the six reasons that Paul provides here. The first reason is found in verse 14, and it's this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the apostles, including Paul himself, were preaching in vain. They were preaching in vain. Look at verse 14, just the first half of it. If Christ has not been raised, or has not been raised then our preaching is in vain. Now the hour there refers to Paul and the apostles. It can apply to us as well. But in in this particular verse, he's referring specifically to himself and the apostles. And we know that because earlier he kind of spelled that out for us. In chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, he says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you now stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul preached the resurrection of Christ. And so Paul, when we get up into into, um, verse 14 here, when he says that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then what I'm preaching to you, what the other apostles are preaching, our message to you is vain. Now what does that word vain mean? The word vain has some different nuances in the New Testament. The word that Paul specifically uses here can refer to something being empty. Think of a glass being empty. There's nothing in it. It can refer to something being foolish or untrue. It can also refer to something being without purpose or result. We use the phrase, he tried in vain. That means you're not going to get the result. You're just doing it over and it's not having the results you want. All three of those apply in this particular instance here. All three of those nuances apply. The gospel is nothing more than empty philosophy. It's like a glass that has nothing in it if Christ didn't rise from the dead. Worse yet, it's foolishness because it's not even true. There's also absolutely no purpose. There's no end result in the gospel. It's vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So all three of those nuances of this word empty or vain here apply to the gospel if Christ didn't rise from the dead. The reason is, we'd be peddling a myth. Is that true? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything I've just said to you this morning is nothing but myth. It's foolishness because man doesn't man doesn't rise from the dead, right? Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we have no evidence that people can rise from the dead. We have no evidence of life after death. We can't prove that. You know, all these people that I saw another article this week about a man who claims to have had an afterlife or after, after death experience. But what's rather challenging and interesting about those things, somebody explained this to me one time in seminary. You ever notice how their vision of heaven looks an awful lot like America? Wait a minute. So heaven looks just like America. 
fact, one guy I remember reading his account had curb-lined streets. Well, that's rather interesting. A lot of parts of the world don't have curb-lined streets. Why is his vision of heaven just like his vision of this earth here? Well, the reason is it's all fake. It's not proof of life after death. People seeing the tunnel at the end, you know, the little boy that went up and sat on Jesus' lap. It's not proof. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I don't necessarily buy it. But it's not proof. It's one person's thoughts, impression. How do we know these people have seen what they really claim to see? That's not proof. But somebody who's been put on a cross, who's been dead in a grave for three days, who now is seen walking around for 40 days having conversation with 500 different people, yeah, that's some pretty good proof. So when Paul says that our preaching is in vain, he's saying it would be completely empty if Christ didn't rise from the dead. And that holds true for us too. Everything that I get up on a Sunday morning to share with you folks would be empty if Christ didn't rise from the dead. It'd be foolishness. I'd be an idiot because I'm preaching something that didn't happen. And so whatever I have to share is empty. Again, it's like you're thirsty and I hand you a glass that's got no water in it. The best you can do is pretend pretend to drink it. It doesn't do you any good. We are preaching the greatest event in human history. It's not vain. It's not empty. Reason number two we find in the second half of verse 14. Let's read that. He says, your faith is also in vain. Paul repeats that word. So what's his second point? He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then it's not just his preaching, it's not just our preaching that's vain, but also our faith, what we actually believe itself, is vain. The same word applies. He uses the same word there. You know, every other religion in the world, aside from Christianity, is based on human wisdom and philosophy. Paul describes the vanity of such things in Colossians. Listen to this. He says in verse 2-8 of Colossians, he calls them empty or vain deception. Same word. He says it's based on elementary principles of the world. He says that these world religions, this other philosophy, verse 18, defraud, rip you off, because they're based on visions of an inflated and fleshly mind. Meaning, just somebody's imagination. He says these other world religions and other beliefs give the appearance of wisdom, but they are self-made religions, and they offer, he says, no value. In other words, every other world religion is vain or empty because it's nothing more than man-made philosophical mumbo-jumbo. I've got a couple of relatives who are neck deep into mysticism and these worldly philosophies, both of whom were raised in a Catholic church. I was reading about one of them a short time ago. I knew that she had gotten involved with a, with a cult. In fact, it was a cult I saw, 60 Minutes or 2020, actually did a story on the woman. And um, this cousin of mine was basically her assistant, her right-hand person. 
and um, I went. I, I didn't realize how, you know, some whatever what happened to her after she had left that that cult. But she's got a, a website set up. But I went and read through the website not too long ago, and wow, it's like a, it's almost like every weird, strange, creepy, demonic concept you can imagine has been adopted and wrapped up into her shaman ministry. Everything from spirit beings to all kinds of... And it, I mean, reading through it, my head was almost exploding because it was just a hodgepodge of literally weirdness. And I kept thinking, how does anybody believe this stuff? Because we're deceived, right? But it's, it's as I read through it, I'm like, there, there's no hope in any of this. It offers absolutely nothing it is focused on the self and the here and the now and it's literally part A doesn't make sense with part B. There's so much contradiction in it. And Paul says it defrauds, it's empty. Gives the appearance of wisdom. People are willing to pay for it. In fact, one relative, my understanding, has paid thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to go on retreats, to be led by an individual who claims to possess this deep spiritual wisdom. Paul says it's empty. That kind of faith is empty. There's nothing to it. It's, again, the glass. It's got nothing in it. One of the main things that sets Christianity apart from every other world religion is the resurrection. Because it's not built on somebody's imagination. It's built on an actual historical event that happened. Now, many world religions are founded by men who claim to be God, Many of them are based on their death or on the death of many of their founders. Sound familiar? Jesus claimed to be God. He died. Christianity's built on that concept that he was crucified. Many promise life after death. Sound familiar? Usually through things like good works, reincarnation, or ascension into a higher plane of existence. But sound familiar? Sounds a lot like Christianity, doesn't it? But what sets Christianity apart is that every other world religion is based on just those promises. Empty promises. But Jesus Christ literally put a nail in it, if you will, proving that what he promised, his claims of being deity, his promise of dying for our sins, being put on a cross, but then rising from the dead, he did exactly what he said he could do. And that's what sets Christianity apart from everything else. That's why our faith is not in vain. That's why it's not empty like every other world religion. So when Paul is giving his reasons, one of them is that our faith is not in vain because of what Christ did for us on the cross. He gives a third reason in verse 15. Let's read that. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. So the third point is that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead then the testimony of the apostles is false. Everything Paul gave his life for, everything Peter gave his life for, and James and John, Stephen and Philip, 
Everything they said was false. Paul writes that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then he and the apostles, he says, were false witnesses of God because they claimed God did something that he didn't do. You know, this idea of false witnessing was one of the big ten. You remember that? Do not bear false witness. But the Ten Commandments, that actually covers lying to one another. You see, there's a different word that's used when it has to do with false witness against God. You know what that word is? Blasphemy. It's got its own special category when you bear false witness against God. It's to speak against. The best way to probably define this is blasphemy is essentially saying that saying or declaring something about God, either in your words or your deeds, that's not true. And God takes it pretty seriously. Leviticus chapter 24, God basically says, somebody does that, you put them to death. Somebody blasphemes me? They say something that's untrue about me? They demonstrate something that's untrue about me? God takes it so seriously that he assigned the death penalty to it. Well, here's the rub. If the apostles bore false witness about the resurrection of Jesus, then how can we trust anything that they've said? If they're going to lie about that, if they're going to lie about God, how can we trust anything they said? And that's Paul's point here. He's basically saying, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we are false witnesses, you can't trust us. Basically means that our entire Bible can be thrown out. How much of our New Testament was written by such men? James, Peter, Paul, John, even James, the half-brother of Christ, might not have been an apostle, but he led the Jerusalem church as far as we know. We'd have to throw out most, if not all, of our New Testament. Because if you can't trust what they said about Christ, about God, then be very dangerous to trust anything else that they say. That's the nature of false teaching. That's one of the reasons why I have a hard time when I find one particular teacher that teaches something that is so far off base, you have to stop and say, do I trust what else he's said or written? Now, it doesn't mean you can't. We're all, we're all still growing. You know, I, I went to seminary. I've got my four-year degree. I've studied the scriptures for probably 40 years. You guys all know that I'm pretty diligent about it. I put in a lot of time. But you know what? Um, I'm still learning. I still adapt what I understand and I believe when I'm challenged by the scriptures. And we have to permit that. But when somebody is so far off base, when you have somebody like maybe a Rob Bell who denies what happens after death in terms of judgment, says there is no hell, there is no lake of fire, when somebody is that far off on core, major aspects of our theology or our faith in Christ, that's where we have to go, well, can I trust that individual on other things? That's one of the reasons why I struggle so much with, um, you know, every pastor, every teacher, every Christian in some respects has those areas where they really enjoy studying and learning. Mine, I've always loved the creation issues. I love Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, I'm a young earth creationist. It makes me an idiot and a fool by many standards. But that's the way that I understand. And I've spent a lot of time and energy in the text to understand that. And um, one of the things that I've always challenged people with is we have one of the, the fast-growing areas within the, within the church today is an abandonment of 
the creation of what's called a literal hermeneutical historical, or I mean, a literal critical historical approach to the book of Genesis. It's all myth. It didn't really happen that way. And the adoption of theistic evolution, um, where God sort of just used evolution to make it all happen, you know, and that, it doesn't fit with the text. There's just too many issues with it. But one of the things I've always told people is I said, well, here's the thing. When you abandon that understanding of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you'll often find that they also abandon other things, like well, Adam and Eve weren't really the first humans. Sin didn't really come from that. But then they also oftentimes go on denying the flood. And then from there they often go on and they end up denying the Tower of Babel. And so the question is, where does it end? You see, if they're so far off in one area, you can't trust them in other areas. And so what Paul says here is, if you can't trust us on the resurrection, you can't trust us on anything. We're false witnesses. And at least coming from a Jew, that was a pretty serious charge. Paul was in some respects condemning himself to death. And in some respects, it serves as a warning. You can't trust us on the resurrection. We're false witnesses. Don't trust anything we say. But we know that Jesus did rise from the dead. And the reason we can trust Paul in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and, and um, you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, I mean, the reason we can believe Paul on those things is because we can believe him on the resurrection. And so... Our faith is not in vain. Our preaching is not in vain. But we can also trust the testimony that we have in the apostles. Paul gives us a fourth reason why the resurrection is critical to our faith. Look at verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Earlier Paul told us that our faith was vain if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but here he uses a slightly different word, and they are synonyms of sorts, however there's some nuances and differences to it. Notice that Paul says it's worthless, but he tells us what he means by that with the very next phrase. He says it's worthless because you are still in your sins. That's different than being vain. Vain means it's so sort of empty, you know, it's, again, foolishness. It's just kind of stupid philosophy. There's nothing really there to it. But here he moves on to the fact that it can't do anything for you. It leaves you in your sins. It promises to do something with your sin, but it leaves you in your sins. Now, what's interesting about this to me is that it actually targets a very specific theological concept for us. What Paul is addressing here is the concept of justification, that's a critical thing for us as Christians. We have been justified, made right before God, put in a, pl- a position of peace. Justification actually refers to the act whereby God takes and he moves us, if you will, from our state of sin into a state of righteousness. They are polar opposites. You are either in sin or you are in righteousness. I'm not talking about committing sins. I'm talking about your actual state. You are confined by sin. When God looks at you, what he sees is sin. And justification is that term that describes God lifting us out of that state of sin and moving us into 
the state of righteousness. Not because of anything we've done, but because of Christ and His righteousness. We are told that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. When God looks at us now, He doesn't see the sin. What He sees is the righteousness of Christ. And in this principle of of, um, justification... It actually is what puts us at peace with God. It's why we can stand before Him. You remember Isaiah when he stood before the Lord. You know, he's looking at the perfect righteousness of God and he says, Woe is me, and he uses this word, I have come undone. He recognized his utter sinfulness before the throne. He had no confidence to be standing there before him because he had no right to stand before him. And you remember, the angel takes the coal and walks over and kind of touches his lips as an act of purification, if you will. When Moses went and saw the burning bush, and the Lord tells him what? Take your shoes off. The ground you're on is holy. But you see, because we have been justified, because we have had the righteousness of Christ imputed onto us, we're told that we can go to the Father. We can go right up to that throne because of the righteousness of Christ. That's justification. And so that's what Paul is getting at here. Romans chapter 5, 1 actually says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through what our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I find really fascinating about this, and I'll be real honest, this is the first time, and I've seen this verse a million times, but this is the first time I made a connection between the resurrection and justification. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says this, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions was raised, get this, because of our justification. Paul specifically says that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because of our justification. It wasn't just his death. It wasn't the death that justified us. That's part of it. It was his resurrection that justifies us. Without the resurrection, our faith is useless because it leaves us in our sins. Had Jesus Christ just died, paid the penalty for our sins, it still would not have put us at peace with God. The job wouldn't have been finished. There's two parts of that. There's taking care of the sin issue, but then there's the part that takes the righteousness of Christ and imputes it onto us. And that, Paul says, was because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where he conquered death. It raises us up so that we can now go and stand before God in confidence. So if God were to look at us and say, what right do you have to stand here before me? You could try like a friend of mine says I'll just (laughs) I'm a pretty good talker I could talk my way into anything good luck with that instead we could say because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and so Paul says that our faith would be useless because we left in our sins if Christ didn't rise from the dead but we know that he did which means our faith is not useless it is useful You and I stand here today justified in Christ because he rose from the dead. It is not a useless faith. Reason number five we find in verse 18. 
then those who also have been or who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In other words, he says, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then there's no hope for the dead. There's no hope in death. There's a reason why the Bible describes Christians who have died as simply being asleep in Jesus. The reason is that for them, physical death is not permanent. It's a temporary thing. I placed my faith in Jesus Christ back in March of 1984 for one reason. I did not think that Christ would lift the depression I was in. I did not think that he would change much about my life that day. I didn't cross my mind. I was so consumed at the thought of being just like that mummy, wondering, what's it going to feel like to be stuck in this grave in the ground for all of eternity? I prayed that he would save me and rescue me from that. That was the only thought on my mind. It was hope. I had no hope. And like I said, I was raised in a, in, a, in, a, in a Catholic family going to church. But for some reason, I I'd never had any hope of leaving the grave. That's what Paul says here. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, there is no hope. You're stuck in the grave. In fact, the reality of it is, if Jesus didn't die from the, or raise from the dead, then he's still dead. Where his body went? Who knows? He's just like that mummy. Bones are somewhere. Probably stuck on the ground or a cave somewhere, right? That's the only other option. But we know Jesus did. People saw it. There were eyewitnesses. We see it every day in our lives. We see what Christ has done. This is, wouldn't be possible. I'm sure all of you could stop and say, I see Christ in my life. I see him operate. And so there is hope. I wouldn't be here today if there wasn't. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is hope. And God demonstrated it in a way that made it so we could all see. You know, you ever wonder why God didn't just take Jesus back up to heaven and leave him there? Why did he spend 40 days here? God knew we needed the witness. Had they not seen him physically walk through walls, show them the nails, the nail holes in his hands and his feet, if they didn't see him sit and eat with them and walk around for 40 days, they might have gone, well, we think he raised. The body's gone. What an amazing, gracious God to give us the proof we needed to see that there is hope after we die on this planet. So we have hope. It's critical to our faith. In fact, we went through First and Second Peter as we were going through our, I'll call it our quarantine at home. We did church at home over Zoom. It's interesting because often with 
the Christian life comes suffering. And sometimes we don't always feel all the hope we might want here and now, right? But we always have the hope of what happens after this. And we're told to look to that. In fact, we're told to look to the coming of Christ. Why? Because that's our hope. The last reason that Paul gives here that the resurrection is critical to our faith in some respects is almost a humorous one to me. Look at verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, we're pathetic. Paul actually returns in this verse here back to the objection in verse 12. It's kind of his way of wrapping it up. Some had made this assertion that there's no resurrection from the dead. And so Paul says, okay, let's just say you're right. So then we're believing in Christ for this life only. That's pretty pathetic. And why is that pathetic? I want you to think about something. One of the commentaries that I purchased as I go through the series here is from a man named David Garland. This is what he has to say about this. If Christ is not raised, then our hope is nothing more than whistling in the dark. Christians become pathetic dupes, taken in by a colossal fraud. Their transformation and glorious spiritual experience in this life are all make-believe. They are the most pitiable of all human beings because they have embraced Christ's death and the suffering in this life for nothing. Christianity would be an ineffective religion that is detrimental to one's health since it bestows only suffering on its followers. Suffering the loss of all things because of Christ and sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, with the hope of attaining the resurrection, all turn out to be foolishness. The world would be right. The cross is utter folly. The joy that characterizes the basic orientation of Christian life is based on the confidence that Christ will return. The dead will be raised, and the wrongs will be made right. If that's not true, then joy is replaced by despair. In other words, what kind of pathetic loser would choose to align himself with Christ and his sufferings in exchange for some non-existent future eternal life and false hope. Think about that for a moment. There are people, we don't suffer quite here, but think about millions and millions of people all over the world throughout history that have paid an awful price because they aligned themselves with Christ. If that was all done for naught, how pathetic is that? We ought to pity them. I was reading something this morning by somebody who was talking about, it was like a Facebook post just about, hey, I think it was from, from one of our famous atheist friends, Hawkins or somebody else, about just living for today because there's nothing left after this. And so you might as well just live for today. And to be real, to be real honest, that, make, that makes sense if Christ didn't rise from the dead because that's all there is. And you'd be foolish not to take advantage of everything that this life has to offer. Why not? Because if you're basically saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to live for this guy, Christ. 
of the promise that someday in the end, there'll be blessings and rewards for doing so, then we're pathetic if that's not true. We ought to be pitied. Now what's funny about this to me is that the world looks at us just that way. All the things you give up. You don't enjoy all the things of life. They kind of pity us in some respects, don't they? They think we're foolish. But because Christ rose from the dead, the tables are turned. I would imagine someday as we're all standing before the throne and the sheep are on one side and the goats are on the other, one side is going to be envying the other side. And one side will be pitying the other. I think you probably know which side is which. And so Paul kind of reminds them as his last point here that there is hope. There is hope because of what Christ did. I'm going to read Romans chapter 6 just to close this out. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 and following. I'm sorry, Romans, yeah, Romans chapter 6. Therefore we have been buried, this is verse 4, with him through baptism into death, so that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, or be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death he died, he died for sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus.